Hello, health scientists, and thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. David Robert Grimes. David is a very interesting guest indeed because he wears many hats. He's a physicist and also a cancer researcher, and he also writes about how people think and how that relates to the spread of information, especially around conspiracy theories. Because of this, he has contributed to a whole host of media outlets, including RTE, the BBC, the New York Times, the Guardian, the Irish Times, and PBS. And he was also the recipient of the 2014 Maddox Prize. I feel very strongly about what we're going to discuss in this episode. 2020 will be remembered for many things, but amongst the worst, in my opinion, is the spread of disinformation. Why do conspiracies spread so easily and what damage can they actually do? And a bit of a spoiler alert, they can do a lot of damage. For example, it's likely that you've heard scary details about the newly developed COVID-19 vaccines. And David talks about the effects of disinformation around vaccines and how that can affect public health. I have a very strong view on health science-related disinformation. But my goal with this episode is not to tell you what's true or what isn't. I want you to start to learn how to identify false information, and David will give you some excellent tips on how to do just that. And you can use those tips regardless of what your current beliefs are. I'm also going to do something I don't usually do and really, really encourage you to share this podcast or any podcast on the topic with David, because this is information that people need to know. We, as a population, need to be better able to make better judgments about the seemingly endless amount of information we're exposed to every day. Share this with your friends and your families, in your stories, on Facebook or Twitter, so as many people as possible can start to learn about information hygiene. And feel free to tag David and myself because we massively appreciate you spreading this important message. So, on to this conversation with David. Let's talk science. David, how are you doing? Good evening. How are you? Good evening to you. Um, So, I'm going to get right into this. And just for for, for anybody who might not be familiar with you, um, uh, could you just give us a little bit of an idea uh, as to, to who you are and what it is you do right now? Absolutely. Uh, Right now I'm drinking a Pepsi. But what I generally do is I am a physicist by training. And for the last 10 years, I've been uh, in cancer research is my my main area. So a bit of a segue. Um, And aside from that, I do a lot on public understanding of science. I write an awful lot for different publications and broadcasters. Um, I've recently had a book out called The Irrational Ape or Good Thinking in the USA. And I've also been lucky enough to win the Maddox Prize, which was most recently won by Anthony Fauci this year. So I've been making a nuisance of myself for about a decade and a bit now. So, okay, there's a lot to get into with that. Um, And the first thing I want to say is, and and this is what kind of immediately caught my attention the first time I heard about you. And I I can remember it was was back in um, when uh, the guys from uh, Fitness Unfiltered uh, were doing their uh, their con- Congress online. And I remember reading, okay, this guy is a physicist who works in, in cancer research. 
And that was that was a little bit, okay, wow, how, how did he make that change? That's, a, that's a, an interesting one. And then somebody who also talks about how we think as human beings. So could you tell us a little bit how you got from physics to cancer research and then to basically how human beings think and how people can, can fall into these a lot of these conspiratorial traps that we have? Um, the expression one of my friends gave to me is that I was intellectually slutty. Um, and I suppose that's a nice way of saying that my, I, my attention span is easily split by things. Um, where I got into cancer, so I started off interested in physics. Uh, I originally considered medicine and then decided for some reason to, to do physics. And as I was doing my PhD, or sorry, I my PhD ended up being in medical physics, which is kind of the intersection of how we image things or how we do calculations. My specific area at the time was ultraviolet radiation and working at the kind of doses that patients receive and, and things like that. Um, and after I, I did my PhD, I decided, yeah, that's interesting, but I want to do something more helpful. I want to do something more useful. And I saw an opening in Oxford for a postdoc in cancer science. And I, I contacted the guy and said, I don't know much about cancer, um, so maybe I'm not the right person for this post. And he was a fantastic professor called Mike Partridge, gentleman. He went, no, that means you'll have no bad habits. Come straight in and we'll train you from the ground up. And, and I did. So I kind of learned on the job. Most of my job since has been about mathematical modeling of things in cancer, whether it's how tumors grow. Particularly, I'm interested in oxygen in tumors and cancer metabolism, effectively, because obviously oxygen is a huge part of the metabolic uh, process. So a lot of my work is modeling how oxygen flows in tumors, how we can image that, how we can use that for treatment, and also looking at how uh, tissue interacts with radiation and things like that. On the side of that, I started writing um, because I liked, I enjoyed writing and trying to explain ideas to people. I, I, I thought it would be useful at the time. Um, when I was still working at the time in this information deficit model where I thought that maybe the problem was we just didn't have enough information. When you get your first screed of hate mail, you realize this problem is fundamentally more deep than not having enough information. There's something else going on here. So I went from a very naive approach um, and I learned stuff on the way as, as I did that. And then I started communicating this more and more. I started working in advising on vaccine policy because that's something that came in from looking at the HPV vaccine, which does prevent about 5% of all cancers. And as way leads on to way, I started researching how conspiracy theorists think and how likely it is they'll hold. So I've gone on a strange path. and It's not, um, it's not the most conventional career trajectory, but it's, it's kept me interested anyway. And hopefully it's been some, some way useful to other people too, I hope. <laughs> Well, as I was saying to you, to you just before we started, like the, the reason I'm getting you on, and I, I said this to people before we started the live as well, is because I think what you're doing is is incredibly useful right now. And I, I go, go go so far as to say it's probably essential. It's much more than than useful. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've I've had a chance to to look through some of the papers that you published on this the specifics of like why people are talking about conspiracy theories during covid um you've got some really and i would highly recommend everybody who's listening if if you if you fancy a, a bit of an academic read uh find, you know do a quick search on uh, pubmed for for david's name you'll you'll get a lot of interesting stuff uh, another thing we may need to get you back at some point to talk about um your uh your your papers on like modeling science and trustworthiness uh you know in, in publishing of research that's something that i, I want to talk about but i digress what i really want to talk about is 
And like I said this to you, the reason I, I got in touch is because I've been very frustrated lately with the amount of disinformation that I have seen online, in different groups online, in different, uh, different types of social media that are publishing information that I know is incorrect. And it's information that is just exploding and getting transmitted. And I suppose the, the, the first question to ask you is this information, this disinformation, what is disinformation? And, and why is it such a risk? And why is it such a danger and such a worry? That's a great question. And there's three rough types of information that can be classified as disinformation. There is misinformation, which is solely a, a misconception that is conveyed or, or shared, so a mistake. That's the most, I suppose, the least malicious version of it. There is disinformation, which uh, has an interesting linguistic history. It was originally in Russian, desinformatsia. And then it, during 1919, just after the First World War, the English translation came out because it was originally used to discredit your opponents. It was, it's a deliberate form of sharing falsehood. So you're trying to undermine. The last version is sometimes called malinformation. And this is when you spread malicious information intended to harm or undermine someone. So these are the three kinds of information failings. Disinformation and misinformation are the most common that we're looking at in the health sphere. Uh, you're looking at two things. When you say you're seeing people sharing wrong things, sometimes that is because they are literally misinformed. They've just read something or misunderstood something or they have half digested something. And we see that a lot in whether it's nutrition or cancer. We see people doing that quite a bit. The other more odious thing is disinformation. And that is when people, for ideological reasons or for other, and we can talk about that later on, uh, spread something that is deliberately false that they in all likelihood know is false. So you see this with anti-vaccine propaganda is typically disinformation because it is designed to scare people. It is designed to undermine the safety and efficacy of vaccination. Uh, it's designed to distract from the overwhelming amount of evidence that shows this to be safe and effective. So that's a deliberate thing. Misinformation, by contrast, is usually accidental, both of which can be damaging. And in this pandemic, we've seen both both examples of both. We've, In some cases, we've seen, under the Trump administration in particular, malinformation used as well to kind of further undermine things. So these things play in concert. They're not always one or the other. And it is fascinating to, to kind of pick apart. But I think if you want to Take one avenue, we'll run down it. So otherwise, I'll go on a rant. So I'll let you direct me entirely. Yeah, I, I suppose one of the big things that I want to, to talk about, and this is this is kind of this, this will set us up for a little bit later. But why are these? Let's say, let's why are these theories, or why is this just disinformation or misinformation, whichever one we we have? Why are they so readily taken up? And then, like, you know, just to, 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 let's say, why are they so readily propagated? Why do they spread so quickly and so rapidly? And, and why are they so difficult to fight against? Why, why are they so difficult to, let's say, counter? Oh, there's a few reasons for that. So when we look at, um, my main expertise on this was looking at how conspiracy theories perpetuate. Particularly, I was looking at vaccination when I was looking at fake claims as a suppressed cancer cure and things like that. And if you look into why, to understand why these spread so easily, we have to know a little bit about human psychology. 
Um, not that I know that much, but I know enough to give a broad overview based on this particular area. So one of the things about these false narratives is they tend to be simplistic. They tend to be very black and white, good, bad. Uh, let's take one from nutrition, for example. I, I often hear people telling me that sugar feeds cancer. Now, that's not true. It's total nonsense. But it's a simple narrative. It's very easy uh, because it, it suggests a hero and a villain, and it makes it nice and nice and neat. So one of the things about these false narratives is they tend to be very simple. They tend to be black and white, good and bad. In reality, most things are nuanced and complicated, particularly with healthcare. For example, if I ask my students, is radiation good for you or bad? Um, they'll twist themselves in knots about it, and then they'll eventually realize that it's contextual. If you're getting treated for cancer, radiation is probably fantastic. If, however, you're uh, rubbing, you know, a slightly radium-infused rock on your skin, probably not so great. So <laughs> I think that people forget that all things in health and well-being are, are contextual. But that doesn't fit the simple narrative. The other thing about the kind of claims we hear is they tend to be outrageous. They tend to be extreme, and they're often designed to play with our emotions, to, and usually to make us angry. There's a good bit of data showing that we are more likely to share things that are outrageous. We are more likely to propagate information that makes us angry or sad or scared. Um, it is an engine of outrage, the Internet, at the best of times, and it is something that people who spread false claims, be it misinformation or disinformation, have intuitively realized. So we're very susceptible to this. Also, to make matters worse, we like to think that we're all very rational and when we're confronted with all these claims that we will be able to uh, part the signal from the noise. We're not. It turns out that we are en masse very, very poor at doing that. We are far more emotional and susceptible to extreme claims than we think we are. And because of a thing called the availability heuristic, which is the fact that we tend to remember, we tend to afford more weight to accounts that stick in our head. The problem with that is that sober-headed facts often aren't that interesting, but a very scary account or a very anger-inducing account, we're going to remember. So we have a psychological bias towards perpetuating falsehood or certainly remembering it. Um, and this unfortunately puts us on the back foot because the more rational carefully sourced thing, which is probably less uh, inflammatory, doesn't get as much traction as the absolute simplistic, nonsensical claim. And therein lieth the rub. That is where we get into a lot of trouble. Yeah, uh, and like even speaking from my own experience, um, let's say on social media, it's very, very easy to see. And I'm, I'm going to say frustrating as well. Like I, I could spend hours working on a post where I'll, I'll, I'll try and include as much let's say, nuance and as much context into a post as, po as possible, into a post as possible, just so somebody can understand something better. And I will post it and it will usually bomb, um, as most of mine do. But I will see something like uh, saying, you know, oh, the top five foods to avoid to, to not gain weight. Or, you know, uh, like you said, one's like, don't eat sugar, it causes cancer. You just see these, these posts that are short, snappy, very, very black and white, um, and quite emotionally rousing as well to, to a point. And they do phenomenally well, and they spread very, very well. Um, so is that kind of something along the lines of, of, of what you're saying? It's like it's, we have a much more difficult, nuanced, complex idea, and we have a very, very simple, punchy idea, and this one just always seems to win out. Absolutely. Look, 
fundamentally on a human level, where we are a bit black and white, we are heroes, villains, and unfortunately the real world is a little bit more nuanced and everything is a little bit more shades of grey than we'd like it to be. So it's very hard, particularly if you're coming from a scientific point of view, where you have to go, well, that's partially true, but largely false, and it's only true in this context. There's all these caveats that come with good science, but there's, there's very rarely a black and white answer. There's usually a, well, it depends, you know. Um, that is never going to be as easy to sell to people as this is good and this is bad. And we see that particularly, I, I suppose, during COVID, we've seen the rise of conspiracy theories about this kind of stuff. We see people saying, oh, there's a cover. And it's always a villain hero narrative. Reality is far more complicated. It is very hard to compete with that. With, In some ways, I, I felt with this in, in the years of doing vaccine kind of stuff, that you're often kind of like in a boxing match where, as a scientist, one of your hands is tied behind your back because you have to tell the truth and you have to put the caveats in. And you're fighting someone who's quite happy to make stuff up and use their feet occasionally. Uh, <laughs> it does hobble us a little bit. And it hobbles us partially because the biggest vector we have for, for disinformation now is the Internet. It is easy to go online and spread whatever you want. The gatekeepers that we once relied on for this, be it the newspapers or, or, or whatever else, they're not as, um, they don't really have the same role they did before. And because we've never learned these basic critical thinking skills, it's, it's become more and more problematic. And we're seeing it in extreme versions. So, yeah, absolutely. It is, um, it is an entire thing to unpack. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, obviously, you know, you mentioned there that the Internet is really, really helping to spread these ideas, you know, like a, at a rate that we've, we've never seen in humanity before. But conspiracy theories are not an, a new thing by by any means. You know, they've 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 been around for for quite a long time. And one thing that like I, I, I do myself and I probably do this as I, I know I'm. Uh, some form of masochism, I'm, I'm not sure. But I, I tend to join a lot of groups online that I know have very, very different beliefs from mine, um, just because I like to know what's going on in these other specific areas of nutrition. Um, but, but within a lot of these groups, we have this kind of common mentality where, you know, people are going to share anything, like if you counter any of their arguments or you say anything that goes against what is being discussed within the group, suddenly you have people shouting things like, oh, you're a sheep or, oh, look at all the sheeple, you know, like these very, very common, um, you know, kind of retorts. Um, Do your own research so you know what you're talking about, which is ironically incredibly depressing um, when when you think about what, what, you know, they're saying themselves. But how likely are individuals that, that kind of propagate these ideas um, and these conspiracies, how likely are they to actually do any actual research or any actual proper digging into into what we're, you know, what they're, they're talking about? At the risk of sounding overly judgmental, they're incredibly unlikely to do any because they don't actually understand what research entails. Uh, one of the most common misconceptions is that research is basically Googling. Um, I wish it were so. Uh, I wish it were so. Uh, it turns out that research is a skill that has to be thought and developed. What people mean sometimes when they say do your own research is find the uh, the pages on social media that say the thing that I'm saying and call that research. That, of course, is a classic example of confirmation bias. But you raise a very interesting um, thing there. When you said specifically people that propagate this stuff, there is a psychological difference between people that seem to be taken um, 
you know, taken aback or, or fall for this stuff versus the people that become the most keen evangelists of it or the loudest mouths about it. And one of the factors that we do see in the psychology of people that do this is that they tend to have a very high perception of themselves. Uh, there tends to be a degree of narcissism involved, and you can kind of see why. So if I imagine that I am an ardent anti-vaccine activist, um, and I've never really done any research, because if I had done any research, I'd know I was wrong. But I've built a social media presence saying this. I have a group of people that look to me as some kind of guru. This is very um, sating to one's ego. It's a good feeling. That is incredibly hard to uh, counteract. The people that propagate this often have that kind of narcissistic element to their personality and convincing them they're wrong is, is, is a waste of time. Um, unfortunately, they do damage because they other people fall victim to it. And the classic example that people in Europe will probably remember, and this is before social media, was the NMR vaccine scare. So when Andrew Wakefield, the now discredited gastroenterologist, tried to claim there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism, he initially, because it was a nonsense paper, he initially got very little traction. And this is before social media. However, anti-vaccine activists started um, accosting human interest journalists with this story, and they eventually took it up. And by 2001, it had become the biggest uh, science story in all the UK. There was no evidence for what Wakefield was saying, none whatsoever. And it still didn't matter. It affected vaccine uptake massively in the UK and surrounding European countries. And one of the things that was really interesting about that is that there was a massively, if you've ever dealt with Wakefield, there's a massively narcissistic element. But most of the parents that did not vaccinate their children were not dyed in the wool anti-vaxxers. They weren't really believing this. They were scared. They were the victims of the anti-vaccine activists. They chose not to vaccinate their children because they weren't sure what to think. And they went with the better the devil we know. Maybe we just be safe because they didn't want to feel they were responsible for maybe causing autism in their children. No. They thought that was a safer option. They were misinformed. The safer option was always to vaccinate. But I think it's really important to us is that these conspiracy theories, this disinformation, it doesn't have to be fully believed to do real harm. It just has to scare people enough to put the seeds of doubt and to put a big question mark over people's head. So I do think we have to separate between people that propagate conspiracy theories and, and misinformation versus people that are victims of it. And I would look at the parents in that scenario who didn't back it as victims. And I would look at the, the narcissistic people, the Wakefields of this world and the people that enabled him as a slightly different cohort. So it's very easy to go, I've heard of conspiracy theorists. I think we need to break it down on levels and go, there's different motivations for different people, for sure. No, absolutely. Um, I, I think, you know, you mentioned at the start, we, we've got people who genuinely have some sort of malicious intent when it comes to propagating this information. And then you have what I would say would be the majority of people who are the bystanders and, and who are continuously exposed to this information. And like you said, they're, they're reacting probably out of fear because like you said, nobody wants to nobody wants to vaccinate their child and their child gets autism. And then for the rest of their life, that person is going to feel, oh my God, my child has autism, e even though that's not a thing at all. Um, I, I, I think there's, you know, um, uh, kind of a, an interesting similarity between that and what happened with the, the Women's Health Initiative, where there was some initial data that kind of led women to believe that HRT was going to cause breast cancer. And 
since that initial report got out, suddenly everybody is, well, a lot of people are terrified of breast cancer. And I, I work with a lot of, you know, uh, peri or postmenopausal women. And, you know, one of the first things I ask, are you on HRT? And they'll all, most of them will say no. And I'll say, oh, right, um, have you considered speaking to your doctors? Oh, no, 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 I heard HRT causes cancer. And some of them, their doctors have told them that. And that's just because this bad information gets out, it gets spread. And like you said, it's very, it's, it's scary. And scary information sticks with us, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I'm, 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 I'm kind of going off to the side. But w- one thing that I wanted to touch on there that, that you brought up is that you, you mentioned about these individuals who are s- spreading this information. They're building up, let's say, a following of individual, individuals who kind of hang on their every word. And I think that kind of, that works two ways because I've, like, for example, in, in the past I've written about um, people shouldn't trust individuals for their information. And, like, for example, I, I will say to people, don't believe something that I say or something I put out on, on social media just because it's me and just because but because you, you, you think it's me. And my thinking is, like, just because somebody puts out accurate information doesn't mean all of the information that they would put out is going to be accurate. That's one thing. And then, two, I think people tend to, if you associate somebody with, you know, uh, correct information, you're also going to associate a lot of other positives with that individual. You're going to assume that they're they're good on all levels, which is not necessarily the case either. And I'm just wondering, what kind of risks are we running by putting blind faith into individuals and not into our way of thinking about information instead? I think that's a huge thing. We use expertise as a heuristic. We kind of go, well, that person is good on this, so therefore, and we think it's transferable. There's two things wrong with that. Firstly, expertise is not necessarily transferable. Uh, The other thing is you can be an expert in something and have massive blind spots or have conflicts of interest, whatever else. I think one of the classic examples, and I write about this sometimes, I, I have a thing I joke about, which is Nobel laureate disease, that if you win a Nobel Prize in medicine, your likelihood of becoming an absolute crank later on in life shoots up massively. And two examples I can think of, um, Luc Montagier, I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, won, got a Nobel Prize for uh, co-discovery of HIV, is an absolute out-and-out crank. Uh, big believer in, in homeopathy, has published a very bad experiment, which he thinks proves it. It doesn't, it's a terrible experiment. Um, the other thing is you have people like Linus Pauling. Linus Pauling is the only individual to have won two Nobel Prizes uh, to himself. And yet Linus Pauling was the man who started the myth that vitamin C, essentially popularized the myth that vitamin C could cure everything from cancer to the common cold. The thing that people still believe when they go and say, oh, I need vitamin infusions or whatever else, it is total nonsense. There's nothing that makes an expert, guarantees an expert is going to always be speaking out of expertise. So we need to realize that shortcut is not perfect. You can look at someone who's a doctor and think, a medical doctor, and think, they're probably going to give me generally good medical advice. But that does not mean it's always going to be uh, legitimate and usable. And I think that's very hard for people to realize. And we've seen during COVID several medical authorities and scientific authorities give advice that is just not okay or shows something in their own biases. And there's no guarantee that just because someone's qualified in something that they're actually speaking the truth of it. The only thing that really matters is does what they say uh, match the evidence base? A scientist or a doctor is only speaking with any authority when they are reflecting the evidence base. Once they go off-piste, 
once they start hand waving or or making up their own interpretations, they're no longer speaking with any authority. And that's a hard concept for people to get grasp, but it's an important one. Yeah, absolutely. Um I I want to get onto like some of the uh the methods that, that people can use to to kind of to be a bit more aware of themselves when they're when they're dealing with this kind of information. Before that, I want to talk specifically about vaccines because a lot of the cur- the current um uh, conspiracies that we're hearing. Obviously, there's been a huge amount of conspiracies about the origin of COVID and, you know, um, just all the conspiracies behind that. But the vaccines in particular, there's been a huge amount of pushback against that. And I just wanted to ask you, what has the, what has the anti-vax movement done? Um, and, and bear in mind, uh, just everybody who's listening, the anti-vax movement is is purely just one of these conspiracy movements online, okay? What has the anti-vax movement done to the progress that we have had on a public health level with vaccines up until now? They've actually done huge damage, and far more than you'd think. So I know that we've all been overtaken with, with COVID and COVID vaccination recently, but I think it's really important to realize that in 2019, the WHO, the World Health Organization, declared vaccine hesitancy a top 10 threat to public health. And the reason they did that was because in the Western world in particular, I'm not sure if that's the correct term anymore, but, you know, the, the very affluent world, I would say, vaccine uptake has been falling massively in certain sections. We've had outbreaks of measles where they were once eradicated. In Europe, the European region, in 2018, we had over 87,000 cases of measles, where about two years before that, we had 4,000, right? So this is incredible, Greece. You've had, um, America was once measles-free, and now this once-conquered disease is making a renaissance. And this is happening in a lot of places with a lot of once, you know, nigh-on-extinct diseases. And the big reason is vaccine hesitancy, which is a fearfulness of vaccinating or an unwillingness to vaccinate. And the biggest factor that influences that and I mean, this most probably is exposure to anti-vaccine propaganda or conspiracy theory. Parents come across these scary things on Facebook. Um, they get hesitant. They get reticent. They go, oh, I'll take the risk and just not vaccinate because I read something scary. And then their poor kid or someone else gets measles, sometimes dies. And it's a false economy, but it's hugely damaging. And we know that it's being driven chiefly by disinformation and propaganda. We also know that anti-vaccine activists in particular have been excellent at doing this. And they've been doing this since before social media. So I have papers from the year 2000, so well before we had Facebooks. I don't know, do we even have MySpace back then? I don't know. Um, showing my age. But back then, there was papers saying that anti-vaccine activists had become incredibly efficient at weaponizing the uh, the the online spaces are coming up with websites at, at accosting people with this stuff, doing mass emails, things like that, and we've seen this to a huge degree. Once social media came along, it was like crack cocaine to them. It was just fantastic because no longer did they need to, um, you know, set up websites. I think they could just go on. And one of the most popular places they do this, by the way, is in new parent forums. If you want to come across some anti-vaxxers, pop into a new parent forum and uh, ask a question about it. And they know this, and they know that people are fearful, and we're not always rational when we're scared. You know, if you just have a newborn life in your hands and you're trying to work out what to do with it, you are you don't want to do anything that might harm that kid. And anti-vaxxers know that 
parents, particularly new parents, are the most pliable and the most uh, likely to suffer due to scary information. So it's been a massive problem, and it still is. And we're seeing even resistance to COVID vaccines. In France, for example, only 40% of the population are willing to take a COVID vaccine because they've heard scary things about it. It is shocking. I think with the with the vaccine thing, I think it's also, you mentioned it, it, it is a, I don't want to say a disease, it's a, a an issue, a problem of, um, like, affluence in that we, we, we've gotten to a point in our society where we, we live in a society where, we don't, we don't really know anybody who has suffered from a lot of these conditions. Like I, I don't, I don't know anybody. Like my, my, my grandparents would have told me of suffering from measles. My grandmother would have told me of individuals she knew who had polio. Okay, um, all of these stories that like nobody talks about now. It's almost like we're very, very good at forgetting what has happened in the past. And then it's almost like the past is bound to repeat itself again because then we've got this this movement toward moving away from vaccines where people are just going to be like, okay, don't need to take them. These diseases aren't a thing anymore. When was the last time you heard of somebody with polio, you know? Um, which unfortunately, God God knows if it is. <laughs> what could happen? Um, but uh, it's a good example of a disease that has been the... the, the you're, there's also like, yeah, there's a complacency. There's a complacency because we're not seeing bodies twisted by polio. We're not seeing on the same level we used to people dying of measles. And because it's not, a, this is availability heuristic again, because it's not available to us, um, we got to go, it's not a problem. Well, it is a problem. And we're seeing that in regions that the, the vaccination rates go too low and suddenly these diseases reemerge. You're seeing children in particular dying. Uh, there was an outbreak, I mean, the big one, I remember in 2013, um, Swansea in Wales was hit over a thousand cases and several deaths of young, healthy people who hadn't been vaccinated due to Andrew Wakefield stuff uh, when they were toddlers back at the height of the scare in 2002. And that was the, the bloody legacy of that. So there can be a delay of many, many years before this actually manifests as a problem. That doesn't make it any less, uh, any less tragic. And yeah, complacency is a huge problem. The retinas, like if you, and, and again, people always think the devil they know. You know, you go to the devil you know, and that's, oh, I'll just, I won't take my chances. What I think needs to be communicated better is that when scientists and doctors are advising people to get vaccinated, they've already done a risk calculation. And it's always, what is always safer? Like people go, oh, there could be side effects to vaccine. Like, yeah, but the odds of you having that side effect is a lot, lot, lot less than you suffering badly from getting this disease and being maimed terribly. Even measles, which people often say, oh, it's not that serious. Well, it kills about, you know, uh, one in a thousand people affected. It deafens or permanently neurologically damages up to 1% of people that get it. They're not odds I'd want to take, you know? And also, it's incredibly unpleasant to have. So even at the least incredibly unpleasant and incredibly infectious, every one case of measles gives rise to 12 to 18. The or naught of measles is 12 to 18. We've all learned a lot about or naught during COVID. Yeah, measles is 12 to 18. We're looking at 1.1 or 4, and that's very high. So you're talking about seriously infectious diseases that need a lot of vaccine uptake. And when that even dips down a little bit, it gets really hairy for everyone. Absolutely. Uh, and you, you, you're bang on. Um, I think a lot of people are really, really bad at weighing up the risk because it's always like, oh, I don't want to risk the side effects. And like, let's let's be honest, in most cases, you know, side effects, we're talking about, you know, a little bit of pain or inflammation around the site of, 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 of the injection, for example. What do you expect, you know? Um, or worst case scenario, death um, with with something like, uh, with, with actually con- con- contracting a disease like, 
measles, contracting something, even contracting something like COVID. Whereas, you know, the majority of individuals may survive. There are individuals out there, especially immunocompromised, that are, they, they either get terrible symptoms, um, or might even get long COVID, or you've got people who die and who are dying. And it's, it's, I, I just find it's very, very irresponsible for some people to assume, I'll be fine. I don't need to do anything. Um, and but, but yeah. Absolutely. And even if you're fine, and we see this a little bit with COVID, I mean, at least that's focusing minds a little bit. Um, I'm, you know, you or I, if we got COVID, probably be okay. But we may be asymptomatic characters that go and kill grandma. So, I mean, good idea is that we live in a society which means that our own choices affect other people too. And it gets, it, the risk calculation is always like, um, I often what I do with anti-vaxxers, particularly the more aggressive ones, when you try to explain a concept like herd immunity, they'll say, oh, I don't want to be part of a herd. I'm not cattle. And you're like, well, you want to live in a society. It's the reason we have, say, speed limits that you can't just decide you're going to drive because it might kill someone else, not just you, you know? And it's this very simplistic model they have of just me and my choices. Well, yeah, but if your choices affect other people, like if I decide I'm going to blow up my house, that's a strange choice. But if I live, you know, in a series of terraced houses, that might, impact my neighbor somewhat and um, I, I know it, it, it's a weird calculation for people to do but we do live in a society and we have to make sometimes decisions based on societal benefit so you may hear vaccination and we see this with COVID people oh well why should I get it? I'm only in my 30s 40s why should I get the vaccine and you're like well you getting the vaccine again might not kill grandma so that's that's great you know um unless that doesn't bother you but even then it's it's a weird one and there's all these I think people just simplify it too much and kind of go, well, actually, we're looking at a wider problem. Because I, I have dealt with people who, in totally in good faith, have been like, but I'm quite young. Like, all these lockdown restrictions, they're very tough. Like, sure, we're all fine. We won't get sick. And I'm like, listen, you're absolutely right. You probably won't. Probably. You may get very ill. I said, but, like, if you're ever coming across someone that comes across someone who comes across someone who lives with an old person or a vulnerable person, that could be very different. Um, and then, like, I know the calculus gets a lot more involved, but it is something to be, I guess, cognizant of. Absolutely. Um, and I think more people need to be. But when it comes to trying to, to, to get some of these ideas across, with some of the more hardcore, let's say, believers of certain conspiracy theories, or even people who have got, like, more hardcore opinions, it is very, very difficult to reason with, with these individuals, and I'm using the word reason specifically because it, it is using some form of logic to try and explain something to an individual, and I know that's very, very difficult to do when somebody's already got something into their mind and made it part of their mentality. But if we talk from, let's say, a societal or, you know, like a more, a, almost a, a, a public uh, health perspective, what can we do to reduce the likelihood that people will be initially blindly taken in by these conspiracy theories in the first place because then once once they take hold it's very very difficult potentially to to get them away from that thinking but if we can do something to help people maybe think better or you know to to immunize them to a certain form of um you know uh information is there anything that we can do on a societal level is there anything that we can do on a grand scale that can help improve society's way of thinking at all and I know that's a very, very difficult question. It's a, great, it's a great question, though. 
Um, long term, the only real vaccine we have against this is to improve our critical thinking skills, is to get better at parsing information as we're confronted with it. That's not an overnight thing. That's not easy to do. Uh, it's not intuitive to us. It has to be learnt. All of us are vulnerable to disinformation to varying degrees. So it's not like you, can, you can't just go, well, I have this amount of education. I have dealt with some of the most educated people, you know, that you could probably imagine. And sometimes their blind spots, I go back to my Nobel laureate examples, are, are staggering. This is not a, a function solely of education or circumstance or, or in natural intelligence. This is the fact that we're all vulnerable to disinformation. So teaching people how to spot it beforehand is really good. Karen Douglas um, in Kent is a brilliant researcher on this. She's a professor of psychology. And she's looked at how you uh, circumvent people falling victim to conspiracy theory, which similar kind of things. And they found that immunization before the event analogous to how immunization works biologically, seems to work. If you know what to look for and you know that, look, there's a conspiracy about this and it says this and that's not true, then you're a lot less likely to fall victim to it if you just come across it in the wild. So uh, in her analogy, um, ex, you know, you can immunize someone against falling victim to disinformation conspiracy theory before the event. It's much more difficult to do repair work after the event. And that's kind of like immunization. It's easier to prevent someone getting the illness than to treat them for getting it in the first place. So I do think we need to immunize ourselves against disinformation. We have to learn the basic precepts of, of um, you know, finding out what's going wrong, how we're being affected by it, and then taking steps to circumvent that. So we have to be on our guard and be able to spot disinformation, falsehood, and also practice information hygiene. And the argument I'd make, and I made this recently in Embo Reports in an article I did for them, and we've all gotten used to the idea of physical hygiene, where I hope most of us have. But the idea, we're all wearing masks, and we're all washing our hands um, to prevent the spread of, of COVID. But we can take a similar approach to information. If you view information that you come across in social media as potentially pathogenic, as potentially like a virus that it could infect you or do you harm, or if it doesn't do you harm, you could pass it on to someone else to do harm to them in the long term. Um, if you look at this and you start treating information like it's potentially dangerous and like, okay, I'm not going to take that seriously until I can verify it from a reliable source or until I can check the WHO and make sure that stacks up. And I'm certainly not going to share it and risk infecting someone else with it until I'm 110% sure that it's legitimate and can be stood over. If we all did that a little bit, there would be a lot less vectoring of disinformation and there'd be a lot less repair work to be done. And we can all learn that. It's, you know, and also learning reputable sources. There's a big difference between the WHO uh, putting a post up versus your uncle's Facebook page. And I think we have to realize that the quality of evidence in the two of them is very incongruent. Absolutely. Um, if you were to tell people now, if you were to, like, if, 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 I'd love if, if people who are listening to this right now, if they could take away a few other solid points that they can just say, okay, here's something I, I've been presented with information. I need to look at this information in a certain way just to verify if it's, let's just say, to, to verify if it passes the conspiracy test or at least some initial phases of a conspiracy test. What would be some of your, your, your kind of your main go-to um, strategies? So if I'm forward on um, health information, and we'll, we'll stick to health information because if we go into serious conspiracy land, we'll get back into the rabbit hole, we'll be going around ourselves. 
Firstly, someone makes a claim that they, the, you know, lockdowns don't work or the COVID vaccine doesn't work, right? And they have a source. You would ask the first thing, if they don't have a source, the first thing you ask for is, what's the source for that claim? Uh, and they then provide you it. And then you check the source and make sure it matches. Oftentimes, people will cherry pick an account. I see this quite a bit where people say, this paper says this. And I then read the paper and I go, no, it didn't. It didn't say that anywhere. You've just tried to bamboozle me to the fact that you've linked to a paper, but that's not what the paper said. Um, so one thing, you check the source. Like if you say, oh, the WHO, well, that's more leg- and, and it agrees with what the person is saying. That's far more legitimate than, say, something that came from Stop Mandatory Vaccination, one of the biggest anti-vaccine groups in the world. You have to suddenly treat all sources quite skeptically. You have to not be willing to buy anything until someone can pass a series of tests with it. And that's not you being precious. That's not you being um, demanding. You do that very, but also you've got to do that with information that agrees with your position too. If someone sends you a link and it seems to just confirm your prejudices, it's equally as important to go, am I just believing this because it suits me? And also to hold yourself to the same standard you'd hold someone else to. Um, and that way we can, so I think what's really important is people sometimes get invested in their wrong ideas because we think changing our minds is a sign of weakness. It is not. It is a sign of strength. The only weakness is refusing to change your mind if the evidence suggests you should. The other caveat that I always put to people is you're never going to change someone else's mind. At best, you are going to give them the tools and the freedom to change their own mind. So, I mean, you see these backward and forward comment wars and things. They're pointless. Uh, they They don't do anything. You're much better saying, okay, one of the questions I ask people, I deal with vaccine has in parents quite a bit. And one of the questions I often ask them, which I, I think is far more effective than, than, you know, lambasting them or costing them, is go, what information would help you? What information would, what could I show you that would help you accept that vaccines are good, right? And when you, and what you start doing is you want to start unpicking what fears are actually motivating people. We've got to remember as well that a lot of people fall victim to conspiracy theory because they are scared. Because conspiracy theories usually offer an easier explanation or simple narrative or in some way perversely are reassuring. One of the examples I always think is weird is you might wonder where people obsessed with Bill Gates or George Soros or something always behind the pandemic. That seems like a very grim worldview. Except it's easier for some people to accept that than to realize that the world is inherently stochastic and that we are so at the mercy of random events that we are more in the lap of the gods than we might like to admit. So there's a perverse reassurance in some of these beliefs that there's at least a plan, even if it's not a great one, and there's a feeling of control that you know something about the plan. So oftentimes, if you can replace someone's fear with, uh, no, well, let's talk about this, you can often circumvent conspiracy theories at their root. It's a very nuanced call. It depends on how well you get on with the person. I don't recommend going online just trying this with random people. But we're dealing with, with family members these days during COVID. 30% of the UK population believe that COVID was a, a bioweapon or was a hoax. So you're talking about substantial volumes of people. And that's the same in America. It's 29 in the UK, 30 in America. And I'm sure it repeats across Europe and the rest of the world. So you're talking about substantial numbers of people that you know aren't out there with tinfoil hats, you know, but are genuinely suffering because of this. And they're usually your family members and your friends. So how do we address that? A little bit of empathy, but also to be stern enough to go, that's um, eventually the cause. That's not actually true. Here's why. But also wondering why, understanding why people think these things is important, I think, is part of the process. Absolutely. And and just, I kind of, I want to reiterate to people, it's, 
it's not easy doing this. It's it's not easy speaking with people, especially if they've got a very, very, um, a very, very hardcore belief. And a lot like like you like you said, David, um, empathy is going to be very, very important here. Compassion is going to be very, very important, and um, a lot of patience as well. Um, and I think you you have to, like you said yourself, you have to be willing to question your own beliefs as well. Um, you know, I. I, I don't think any individual should blindly follow any idea. You know, we have to be, we have to have a, a healthy level of skepticism. Um, and, you know, I, I can't, I can't elaborate on that anymore. There needs to be a certain, we need to be able to question certain things. Because if I believed certain things about nutrition, if I believed them to be um, universally true, I, I, I consider myself uh, a failure as a nutritionist because I just nutrition science is, it's something that's developing. And I'm continuously learning things. Every like I, I said this to a friend of mine once. The more I study nutrition, the more I realize I know sweet feck all about nutrition. Um, and I think we all need to admit something. You actually pointed out something really important there. There's a thing called the thing is the Dunning Kruger effect that sometimes the people that know the least think they know the most because the more you learn about something, the more you realize, oh, this is really complicated. The other thing that you've just encapsulated there really beautifully is something that sometimes frustrates people about science, but is actually, I think that we need to reframe this a bit. Um, people often go, well, science keeps changing. Like last week we were told this, and now we're being told this. And I'm like, that's because science is constantly updating as we learn more. So sometimes the advice that we gave based on best evidence a few months ago, particularly since during the pandemic, will start changing as we get more data. That isn't science failing or changing its mind or flip-flopping. It's science updating itself as we get more evidence. And you mentioned nutrition there. As we learn more about biology, science, diet, of course, the advice should change. If the advice is still the same as it was decades ago and the evidence has been going up one way, something is in a strange gear. Absolutely. Um, David, I want to talk about your book before we end. But just before that, there's one other thing that I want to talk about when it comes to all of this uh, almost um, information hygiene that we've been talking about. And it's so recently, obviously, the social media channels have been trying to fact check information and they've trying uh been trying to to to, to basically uh stem the tide of what's coming in with misinformation but obviously how effective do you think social media companies are going to be able to do that how effectively do you think they can do it and is there like is there a major ethical concern because obviously some people are going to immediately shout that there's a major infringement on on free speech that's happening here if, 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 if Facebook, for example, is saying what can and can't be published. Mm. So to, to, to counteract that argument, I'd say you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. And there is a, Social media companies actually bear a huge amount of responsibility for this. They have no real interest in policing it. Everything that matters to them is engagement. Some of the anti-vaccine groups were massive. They were hundreds of thousands of people. That's all engagement. That's all profit. So they have a vested interest in actually policing it. We saw that during the American election where they didn't move um, about the, the, the Trump propaganda and the falsehood spread there. Uh, they would wavely, blind, blindly wave their hands and say, oh, freedom of speech, except that's a misunderstanding. Freedom of speech guarantees that the government can't arrest you for whatever you think. That's about it. It doesn't guarantee you a platform. It doesn't give you a right to share it. It doesn't even make sure anyone has to respect it. Like, if you have terrible opinions, people go, eh, you've got terrible opinions and I don't want to listen to them. That is also freedom of speech. 
Um, there's a misunderstanding that that entitles you to go on Facebook and spread conspiracy theories. It doesn't really. Social media companies love blurring that because they don't really want to piece it because it's hard. And they don't really want to lose the engagement because that's money. So you do have this vested interest. That's why they often play this lip service. Oh, we're doing something about it now. And you're like, we've been telling you this is a problem for 15 years and you, you're still kind of denying it. Even as recently as November last year, Mark Zuckerberg was saying, oh, well, people have the right to choose whatever you know news really suits them. And you're like, yeah, but we're talking about choosing stuff that is wrong. That's not in anyone's in benefit except Facebook's. So I have a little, I, I'd be very skeptical of social media companies ever policing this unless, say, something like the European Union decides to pass laws that make them do it. And they won't do it voluntarily, I don't think. They'll put up a good show of pretending to because that's what I'd do if I was running Facebook and had no particular qualms about whether dealing with this problem. I'd be like, oh, we'll make an appearance of doing it and just continue to let it. Um, but yes, I think the only solution short term is for us to get better at realizing that the same way that pen has never refused ink, social media has never refused absolute garbage being shared through it at a rate of knots. Oh, it's a terribly unfortunate truth right there. Um, David, like I, I, I literally could talk to you for hours about this. Like, uh, like, Oh, anyway, I, I'm I'm not going to bore the, the the rest of the audience with me talking anymore. But you have published a book, and I was wondering if you could just tell us very very quickly about it um, and what 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 you talk about in the book. Oh sure. So the I got really interested in, in why we get things wrong, and I include myself in that. I never want to give the impression that I think that I I get things wrong all the time, uh, and it's amazing when you find your own blind spots and go, "Oh, didn't even see that coming." So I got so fascinated about this from, from writing about different scientific issues over the years that I wrote a book called The Irrational Ape. And it's about why we as a species um, fall for propaganda, conspiracy theories and, and disinformation. And there's a mixture of reasons we do that. And, and, and some of them, I, I, I kind of broke down the major reasons with a lot of stories about like things that have truly happened. And some of the things that have happened over the past you know, 100 years based on these kind of business plans is absolutely shocking. Some of the stories, it's mainly a series of stories with a lesson in, in each kind of one of them. That's available from Simon & Sister UK and it's published in uh, the US as Good Thinking. So it was fun to write, but like I've had to rewrite sections of it for COVID and, and everything because, you know, it, it, it's great, but suddenly I got more fresh examples and the publisher was like, do you want to update this? I'm like, I think I'd like to, yes. Uh, unfortunately, it's given me a lot of fresh material if I ever want to go on, write more on that. Uh, but yes, that's I won't harp on about it. If people want to check it out, they can. And if they don't, that's entirely fine too. So that's the Irrational Ape here in Europe and in the US, it's called? Good thinking. Uh, the US Good thinking. didn't more... They thought the Irrational Ape was too obscure and the U.S. audience wouldn't appreciate it. So who am I to argue with the marketing department? I thought, I thought the Irrational Ape was an absolutely solid name for the book. Um, David, I, I, just for anybody who wants to follow you or learn some more about you, what are the best ways to do it, uh, social media or, or what? Um, so I've started using Instagram now. So this is, this is a good channel. Uh, David underscore Robert underscore Grimes. On Twitter, I'm at DRG1985. And my website is www.davidrobertgrimes.com. There's a contact form on there. Um, yeah, so I try to respond. Um, I still am lecturing full time and trying to, but I do tend to show up. So I will respond. It might just take a while. <laughs> <laughs> 
And everybody, if, if you're not following David already, I, I cannot recommend you do it enough. His content now more than ever needs to be shared. We need that information to be out there so people can have a better way of thinking about the information that we're presented with. Um, David, what you're doing is absolutely wonderful. It's, it, it is a service to society. And I just want to say thank you for what you do. Um, and I, I want to wish you the best of luck with everything that you're going to be doing in the future and all the success with that. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to chat with you here again sometime soon. I hope so. It was my pleasure being on and please continue the good work and thank you for everyone for listening and I hope it was useful in some ways. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Dave. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.